The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you have your Bibles or your apps, would you open with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, we're coming to the conclusion of a study that we've been in for numerous weeks now. We've journeyed our way through the book of Daniel. Uh, next week, we'll look at the end of Daniel 11, which is about the Antichrist, and uh, then we'll conclude it the week after that as we look at Daniel chapter 12 together. How many of you, I wrote my notes, college students, this is your last week with us. You've got finals this next week. How many of you guys are college students anywhere out there? College students, there you go. Finals this week, is that right? Yeah, just hang out you now to study. Just you'll breeze through them. It's not a problem, right? Uh, actually, uh, I want to pray for these guys. So, you're a college kid. Why don't you stand up? College students anywhere out there? I want to pray for you. I meant to do that earlier. So, all of our students, uh, we're going to miss you. They take off after this week, and uh, we'll be headed back to wherever they're going to be this summer. Next week, you're with us another week. Then sit down. I'm not going to pray for. No, stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Father, thank you for these young people. Thank you for the delight they bring to our body and the joy of watching them grow and their commitment to Jesus. Lord, I pray for them as they study. I pray for them as they uh, take their test. I pray blessing over them. And Lord, I pray for the summer months for them. Many of them will be working. Some will be serving different places. Some of them here. I pray blessing over these dear brothers and sisters. Father, thank you. Thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's thank these young people for being with us, man. They're all over the place. Thank you. If you Google up vintage commercials, just go to Google, not now, okay? Uh, if you Google vintage commercials and go to video, it's pretty amazing what you'll see. There are all these commercials from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way up to current day. Actually, vintage would not be current day, but stops in about 2010. And uh, so these vintage commercials, advertisers and marketers say perhaps the most successful series of commercials that ever came about came about in the late 70s and early 80s. It had to do with a financial service company. See if you remember this commercial if you were even born back then. Now that looks like a very interesting situation. My broker is really enthusiastic about it. What does your broker say? Well, my broker is E.F. Hutton, and E.F. Hutton says... How many of you remember that? Do you remember those E.F. Hutton commercials? When E.F. Hutton, e. Hutton speaks, people listen. People listen. And uh, I've got one better than that, guys. Here's the one better. When God speaks, things happen, okay? When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. But when God speaks, things happen. That's what Daniel chapter 11 is about. God is speaking to Daniel. He's given a vision, ch chapter 10, verse 1. And, and when God laid out this vision to Daniel, many of the things found in chapter 11 are things that are going to take place from 100 to 350 years later. When God speaks, things happen. E.F. Hutton, if you saw that series of commercials, the most successful, they say, in advertising history, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. When God speaks, things happen. See it in Genesis chapter 1. God spoke, let there be light, there was light. God spoke, let the, the, the seas be filled, teeming with uh, fish, and they're filled with fish. God says, let the earth be filled with, animals, filled with animals. Ultimately, God says, let us make man in our image, and the earth is populated with us. And so when God speaks, things happen. When we come to Daniel chapter 11, most of what we're going to see there when Daniel speaks is future. We look back and see the historical fulfillment of those things. God spoke, things happened, and we get to see it. God spoke, things happened, and we get to see it. 
Don Campbell, the former president of Dallas Seminary, wrote a commentary in the book of Daniel. And in that commentary, he says, in the first 35 verses of chapter 11, there are at least 135 prophecies that have been fulfilled and can be corroborated by studying the history of this period. <clears throat> so Campbell says, excuse me, Campbell says there are about 135 prophecies in the first verses of Daniel chapter 11, and those prophecies have been fulfilled. That's amazing. I mean, it's an amazing thing to do. And when we look at the fulfillment of prophecy, I think it should do two things for us. Tim talked about the value of the word of God. And when we see fulfilled prophecy, words that are written or recorded for us hundreds of years before they're fulfilled, it should give us greater confidence in the veracity of God's word, the truth of God's word, the reliability of God's word. You hold in your hand the inspired and errant word of God. And the fulfillment of prophecy is one of the arguments for that word. Secondly, it should give us a greater faith and confidence in the God who wrote these words and fulfilled them through history. God spoke and they would happen. He is the sovereign God of the universe. And when he speaks, things happen. So Daniel chapter 11 is really a study of wars and rumors of wars. It's about kingdoms that rise and kingdoms that fall. It's about empires that come and empires that go. It's about kings that rise up and kings that are torn down. It begins in verse 2 with an empire that we've looked at a couple of times in Daniel's prophecies with the uh, empire of the Medes and the Persians, the Media Persian Empire. Look at verse 2. Behold, I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to rise in Persia. Then a fourth one will gain far more riches than all of these. As soon as he becomes strong, though, is through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the nation of Greece. And so when you look back in history, you have to ask yourself, was there a strong king, stronger, wealthier than any of the other kings of the Medo-Persian empire that went against Greece? And the answer is yes. If you look at the history of the Medo-Persian empire, his name was Xerxes, Xerxes. Xerxes was actually the king who took Esther into his harem as her queen. When we read the book of Esther, we read about the Hebrew name Azarias. That's the same name, same king as Xerxes that we're reading about here. And so we can look back and say historically this happened. In fact, he went against the Greek empire. When he went against the Greeks, he had over 100,000 soldiers. He had over 100 ships and he was routed. He was defeated soundly, utterly defeated. Kind of like A&M when they played LSU in football the last three years or University of Texas when they play anybody in football the last three years. So. Who have I missed so far? Anyway, that's what's happening. The Medes and the Persians, they rise up and they fall down, and that's what we see happening. Now, from, chap from chapter 11, verse 3, all the way to the middle of the chapter, all the way through verse 20, it's a series of battles that take place. In fact, in kings rising up and falling down. Look at verse 3. A mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. This is from the Greeks. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out towards four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, not according to the authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others before them. So this great king of the Greek empire is going to rise up and when he dies, his sons are not going to get his kingdom but four descendants, not his, the four points on the compass. In chapter eight of Daniel, it talked about the four horns. So these four generals are gonna take over, not his descendants. So I've got some folks who can help me hold some signs up. If you guys would come and help me, uh, we have asked a few guys to help us here, guys and gals. So if you'll come up and help me, we appreciate it very much. So just to help you understand this chapter without going through all those verses, here's what happened. The great king, Darren, you're going to be Alexander the Great. You're going to be front and center right behind the cross here, and you're going to hold this high, and you're going to turn it so everybody can see it in the whole auditorium. Here's your chance to shine, brother. 
shine. You go that way, you go that way, there you go. Alexander the Great, super. So Alexander the Great is described for us in verses three and four. That's who he is, not Darren, but Alexander the Great. And so Alexander the Great, is gonna, he's gonna go, he's gonna die, and when he dies, four people are gonna take over in his presence. The first one is a general called Lysimachus. Lysimachus, Lysimachus, you're over here. There you go, Mr. Childs, Miss Norman, here you are. You are Cassander, okay? So you're the other general, raise it high, and you go stand next to this young man over here. And uh, then we have Ptolemy. Ptolemy's going to come up, and uh, you're going to be over here. And then we have Seleucus. Seleucus Empire is over here. And uh, then we have behind us your honor, Judge Van Orton. Uh, you're going to stand in the background over here because you're a problem, okay? So he is a problem person. So don't even raise your sign yet. Put it down. You've got to follow instructions. There we go. And uh, we're gonna do it. so Alexander the Great rules the Greek Empire, okay? He is our man. When he dies, there are four people that come into power. They're not his descendants. It says that in Daniel chapter 11. So the four descendants are Cassander. And so there you go, raise it and show it high. And then Lysimachus comes in. Alexander the Great dies. He's gone. Set your cardboard sign down and you're off the stage uh, because he's a goner. You guys can step up closer to the end. So you've got these two guys and then you have Ptolemy over here, come closer to me, I'm not gonna bite, there we go. And we have Seleucus down there, the Seleucus dynasty. Well, the rest of Daniel chapter 11 focuses upon these two folks. So you two go away, put your cardboard signs down. Thank these young people for being up here with me. There we go. So they go away. So we go to Daniel chapter 11 and here's what we find. You're gonna show everybody, your honor, you can come over here closer to me now. There we go, back behind the stool, thank you. And so these two people are left. These are the two rulers. And so we should have Ptolemy here, is that right? Okay. And so Ptolemy is to the south. The south is in that direction that we went right now in the building we're in, that way is south. To the south on a map, if you look at that time and then if you'll pop that map up, uh, we have some countries. To the north, we have Syria. This is the Seleucid Empire. S uh, Seleucid, you're gonna raise it high, show them, Boy, there you go. It's your chance to shine, there you go, on a Sunday morning TBC. This is the Syrian Empire. The Seleucid dynasty ruled the Syrian Empire. The Ptolemaic uh, dynasty ruled the Egyptians, ruled the Egyptians. So uh, we have the Egyptian power here. If you look on the map, you see the Egyptians to the south, you see the Syrians to the north. Now, what is between Syria and Egypt? Israel. Because you may be asking the question, well, why is this so important for Daniel to bring out these dynasties and devote almost a whole chapter for him and, and God to do that? It's because these two generals, these two kingdoms, the, 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 the kingdom of the, of the south, which is Egypt, and the kingdom of the north, which is Syria, they were always battling. So if you look on the map, when they battled, the king of Syria to the north would often come down, actually twice in history, came down to fight the Egyptians. Now, here's the problem. He often lost. The Seleucids would come down. They really wanted to take over Egypt, but they would lose those battles. So when they went home, they were ashamed. They were embarrassed. They were destroyed. They were distraught. And they took it out on the Israelites and the Jewish people when they returned home. So you guys caused a lot of problems to the Jewish people. And so you would go and fight the Egyptians down here, and that would happen. Well, within the Seleucid dynasty, rises up in Daniel chapter 11, an awful king. In fact, the Jews called him a madman. This is our madman, okay? Antiochus Epiphanes IV. 
you're mad. You go stand behind Miss Seleucus over here. You're part of that dynasty. There you go. And Antiochus Epiphanes IV was a madman. That's what the Jews called him. In fact, in Daniel chapter 8, we studied this. We saw Antiochus Epiphanes was the guy who took a pig and slaughtered it and had the blood sacrificed on the temple in Jerusalem. A Jew recognizing a pig has been sacrificed in Jerusalem. He also had a shrine built to Zeus and put that shrine outside the temple. And so the Jews would have to walk by and see this idol every time they went there. He was a madman. You're a madman, Judge Van Orton. You're a madman. <laughs> and so that's what took place and that's what happened. Not only that, he had 100,000, approximately 100,000 Jewish folks in the vicinity of Jerusalem massacred and murdered. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, the bulk of this chapter is devoted to Antiochus Epiphanes, the madman, Judge Charlie Van Orden. Okay. That's who we're talking about. Would you think these folks would help me? You guys can put that down. So hopefully, hopefully my goal in doing that was press multiple verses you find in Daniel chapter 11 and maybe give you something where you can remember what was going on. So you've got this battle. You can see the map. I mean, the Syrians would come down. They would battle Egypt and say, Gary, well, how do you know all that? Well, the scriptures bear it out and history bears it out as well. So the bulk of our time, we're going to focus on the battle between Antiochus Epiphanes and the Jewish people. So jump down with me to Daniel chapter 11, verse 21. Daniel chapter 11, verse 21. So we've got the Medes and the Persians. They have come and gone. Now we have the Egyptians, the king of the south, versus the Seleucids of Syria, the king of the north. And from the Seleucids arise Judge Van Orden. You remember over here the madman. Uh, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. That's who we read about in verse 21. In his place, in the place of the king, a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come on a time of come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. So what happened? Well, if you look at the history of how Antiochus Epiphanes came into power, his brother was the king. When his brother died, the rightful heir would have been the brother's son, right? But that son was actually in Rome at that time. He was under house arrest. He was being questioned by the Romans about some things that had happened in his empire. And so brother dies. The son who's the rightful heir to the throne is in Rome. So guess what happens? The madman, Antiochus Epiphanes, steps in and seizes the throne. So the uncle makes sure the nephew does not have access to the throne. He never does, in fact, in his whole life. And the result is Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the madman who Charlie was up over here. By the way, we're good friends. I asked him if he could be my, uh, my hit man this hour, and he said yes. Uh, but that, that was the madman who then did all those things to the Jewish people. And so when Daniel writes about him, he calls him a despicable man in verse 21. Not only that, look at what he describes. He describes, by, by the way, Antiochus Epiphanes would come into his, his position as ruler uh, within the Syrian empire 350 years after Daniel chapter 11 was written. Let me say that again. When Daniel chapter 11 is written, when Daniel is given this vision, and he talks about the specifics of the kingdom of Greece being broken up into four different generals and then eventually Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucid dynasty comes into power. It's 350 years after he receives this prophecy. In fact, if you read liberal scholars and I go online and read what they have to say about this, what they say is Daniel chapter 11 cannot be written by Daniel. 
because it's too specific in its prophecies. Well, they have to explain it away somehow. So what they say is Daniel's chapter 10, 11, and 12 are an appendage added by later writers to the actual book of Daniel. That's the only way they can explain everything they're seeing here because God brought all this stuff to fruition. So if you don't believe in the supernatural, you've got to explain it away somehow. And so that's how they explain it away. So we go on. It says, uh, jump down to verse uh, 23. After an alliance is made with him, with Antiochus Epiphanes, he will practice deception. He will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a season. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So history tells us what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He would conquer some smaller kingdoms, and when he conquered these smaller kingdoms, he would pass out booty to the ones who would ally with him, and ultimately his desire was to go up against the king of the south that was Egypt. So everything you read in those verses is fulfilled historically. We can see it. Scriptures go on. Talking about this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. By the way, he is a prototype of the Antichrist. He is a prototype of the Antichrist. Don't call Judge Van Orden over here the Antichrist, but that's who he represented in our little, little illustration here. So, he goes on. Look at verse 27. Both kings, that is the king of the north, the king of the south, the king of Syria, the king of Egypt, the, the Ptolemonic king and the Seleucid king. As for both kings, look at verse 27. Both kings will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the table, but will not succeed. You see what's happening here? The leaders of two nations are coming together to talk about peace, but they weren't truthful with one another. They had their own agendas for their own nations. I'm glad that doesn't happen today, aren't you? (laughs) You see how relevant the Word of God can be at times? I mean, all of a sudden, you've got two kings coming together, and Daniel says, hey, when these guys come together 350 years from now, their intention will be evil. They're going to speak lies. But guess what? These things will not come about until the appointed time. And then he will return to the land, verse 28, with plunder, but his heart will be against the holy covenant, against God's people. And then if you drop down to verse 30, it says, ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore, he'll become disheartened and he'll return and become enraged with the people of the covenant and he'll take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. So what happens is Antiochus Epiphanes, that's our dude over here, the Antichrist prototype. What happens is he wants to go fight the king of the south. When he goes to fight the king of the south, the people from Katim, those are the Romans. They're the next emerging world power. They say, we don't want you to go and fight against the Egyptians. And if you do so, actually what happens the Roman Senate sent a Roman proconsul. They literally met. They had a peace conference. Eventually, the Roman proconsul got up. They were meeting on a sandy beach. He drew a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes, the madman, history tells us, and they, he, they gave him two options. If you fight, we fight against you or go home. And so just what the scriptures say happened, he returned home. On his way home, he took it out on the Jewish people. And that's when 100,000 Jews or or lose their lives. That's when pig is sacrificed in the temple. That's when a shrine to Zeus is built. And all these things take place in a period of time after that because of his shame and his defeat. And then it says, all this was done. If you drop all the way down to verse 35, uh, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is the appointed time. 
Verse 27, the appointed time. Verse 29, the appointed time. Verse 35, the appointed time. We'll talk about that in a second. So, all of these things came to pass. Donald Campbell, I did not count to see if it's 135, let's just say, in the neighborhood of 100 plus. Prophecies in these first 20 or 35 verses that come to fruition. When God speaks, my friends, things happen. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. When he speaks, things happen. When he says they're going to come to pass, they come to pass. So when I look at prophecy, it does two things for me. The first thing it does for me is give me even greater confidence in God's word. Because these words were spoken, as we said, anywhere from 100 to 350 years beforehand, and all of them came to pass. So you hold in your hand, you look on your phone, on your iPad, whatever you're using, whatever device, and you can have confidence in this word because we see it came to fruition. The second thing, it should cause us to reflect and say what a great God we have. What a great God who controls the events of history to accomplish his purposes. What a great God who speaks, and when he speaks, it's going to happen. And so when I look at prophecy, those two things, for the last several weeks as I've looked at them, greater trust in God's word, greater trust in the God of the word, because he accomplishes what he says he's going to accomplish. So as I was in my study this week, I'm praying, I'm saying, God, what, what do you want me to know and what do you want your people to know? I mean, when we look at this, what do we need to know? Because the question I mauled over in that was, okay, God knows what's going to happen. Okay, in his omniscience, he knows what's going to happen. So knowing that God knows that, so what? God knows what's going to happen. And the fact that he gives us prophetic scripture allows us to know that God knows us what's going to happen. So how should that impact us? I posted on Facebook last night, knowing that God knows, so what? And, and I got multiple responses, I got numerous responses. Knowing that God knows when my friend writes means I cannot hide. It's an incredible thing that I can be vulnerable before the God of the universe. Another one of our TBCs writes this, knowing that God knows gives me peace and rest. Another TBC writes, knowing that God knows keeps me confident in the power and might of an all-knowing almighty God who can accomplish his purposes. I, I just, in my study this week, I came up with three things. I'm going to flip through some things here that I'm not going to use. Knowing that God knows, more importantly than anything else, demonstrates his care. Demonstrates his care for us. Demonstrates his love for us. And he does that in a number of ways. When, when God speaks prophetically, sometimes he speaks through warnings. Sometimes he speaks through warnings. Over and over in the scriptures, Bev and I reading through the Bible here, we're talking a couple of weeks ago, we're both reading through the curses and blessings in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. God says, if you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you're going to be cursed. If you do this, you'll be blessed. And so these are warnings given to the nation of Israel. If then, if then, if then. Uh, over Easter weekend, our, all of our grandkids are with us and the families and uh, uh, everybody went somewhere and I was keeping Ivor, the youngest. He's one year old. He just learned how to walk. And so he's tooling around everywhere. I don't know what it is about little kids that learn how to walk and plugs in the wall. I, I mean, have you experienced that? Wall sockets for some reason, I guess it's eye level. And so uh, they're gone. It's my job to watch Ivor. Ivor, don't go there. Ivor, that's going to hurt you. Ivor, Papado says. And then the next thing, Ivor discovers we have stairs in the house. 
And so it's Ivor. I mean, Ivor, I need to go get a gate to put in these stairs. Don't go there. He'd understand that. But it's Ivor, don't. Ivor, don't. And Ivor, here's a ball. Let's play ball for a while. So we play ball for a while. But that plug is calling his name. So why do parents and grandparents warn kids not to go near a plug and play with it and shove something in it or, or, or not to go to stairs when you can't negotiate? Because you love them. You care for them. Warnings are, should be words of care. Uh, but warnings. I mean, there are all kinds of warnings out there. Here's some warning signs I ran across this week. I mean, you figure out which way you're going to go. Uh, here's my favorite warning sign. It says, good luck underneath that. Um, here, here's another warning sign. Unattended children will be given an espresso and a puppy. And uh, my favorite warning occurs on a lady's license plate in the state of Oregon. It says PMS 24-7. <laughs> there was ever a warning, that's a warning right there. Okay. Uh, but God gives us warnings throughout the scriptures. Here's just one warning. Beware of preaching your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. It's a warning. He's, he warned us about not praying to receive the recognition of men, not giving to seek the recognition of men, not fasting to seek the recognition of men. That's just one warning in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. I give you hundreds of warnings. Hundreds of warnings in Scripture. Why does God warn us? God warned us because of his love and care for us. That's why. Secondly, God demonstrates his care not only through warning us, but through demonstrating his sovereign rule. Aren't you glad he's the ruler of the universe and you're not? Aren't you glad he's the ruler of the universe and your kids are not? Aren't you glad he's the ruler of the universe and not politicians somewhere? Aren't you glad that our sovereign God is the ruler of this universe? Because of that, we can rest. I typed in my notes, because God is sovereign, I, and you fill in that blank. Here's what I filled in my office. With the disease I have, every six months you go to get a CAT scan. So they give you a little contrast, you drink it, then you go in the CAT scan machine, and usually it's two or three days later that my oncologist meets with me. And so I'm in a Facebook, I'm actually in four Facebook groups with people with this disease, and they've developed a word. It's the time between waiting for the results of your scan and meeting with your doctor, two or three days. It's called scanxiety, scanxiety. It's the anxiousness a person has knowing that you're going to receive some kind of news, and so it's filled with anxiety. So in my notes, I wrote, as a result of God's sovereign rule, I don't have to have scanxiety. What would you fill in there? As a result of God's sovereign rule, I, it may be positive or it may be something you can avoid. I have rest. I don't have to be the general manager of the universe. I don't have to worry because he's in control. I can rest in him. You fill in that blank. And the third way that God demonstrates his care, knowing that he knows, is this. Napoleon Bonaparte, I'll talk about him later. God demonstrates his care through his salvation. <clears throat> you saw Israel was that land that was fodder between these two nations that were fighting. And then it went away. And guess what happened? It came back. God saved his people. God also saves us through Jesus. And his prophecies often looked ahead to the coming Messiah. When I look at prophecy, here's what I know. Seeing God's promises fulfilled in the past give us faith for today and hope for tomorrow. See, when we realize what God has done in the past and he fulfilled his promises, 
then, then it should give us, it should let us know, it should reveal to us that he's going to accomplish what he said he would so I can have faith for today and I can have hope for tomorrow because he's the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You ever do something and the first time you do it, you're scared to death to do it. I mean, just scared to death to do it. You're thinking, why am I doing this? And then you get through it and you realize that wasn't so bad and I won't mind doing it again. A number of years ago, Bev and I had the privilege to go to Young Life Camp as adult guests. Some of you were there. And as adult guests, you get to do everything the high school kids do. And so there's a day when <clears throat> we were going to rappel and we were going to do a zip line. Now, this is like a body built for rappelling. <laughs> I, I mean, this is not a rappelling type of body. And so we climb this mountain and you get to the top of it and it's my turn to rappel. And I've never done this before. And so we get there, and if you've ever repelled, and a bunch of you have when you're in the military and other places, I mean, you're harnessed in, and they hook a rope on you, and then you kind of back off the edge, and you lay back, and the last thing you want to do is what I did when you look down, and I was about 100,000 feet up in the air. <laughs> and then you've got to go, well, when I looked back and I looked up, I saw the young man who was working there. And this thought went through my mind. He's 19 years old. He's doing a summer job getting paid eight bucks an hour. He's trained for like two weeks to do this. And I'm going to trust my life to this kid. I must be crazy. What am I doing here? This is absolutely nuts. I mean, this is a kid working a summer job and my life is in his hands. I used that illustration last hour. And uh, when I used that illustration and said they've been trained for two weeks, one of our brothers, Brian, came up to me and said, hey, I, I worked repelling at Young Life Camp Frontier 2014. We got trained for six hours, not two weeks. <laughs> I said, bro, if I'd have known that, I'd have run the other, I'd have jumped off the cliff instead of rappelled down the cliff. So, so all of a sudden the guy lets me, you know, Mr. Savile, you got to go, you got to go, you got to, Bev can tell you, I'm sweating profusely. I mean, I'm turning white as she, I'm... and then you start going down and you make it. Well, we went from there to the zip line. I ask you once again, if you weigh 200, 100 pounds, this is not a body made for zip lining. In fact, if I get on a zip line, gravity takes over. I'm the fastest guy in the whole course. Okay, I'm moving, man, I am. I mean, and, and some sadistic dude invented the very last station. The very last station, you come, you get the zip line, you come to a tree. And on that tree was built a stand, right? It was a stand. I mean, the sucker was like that big. And so I can barely fit on this thing. And you stand there, and uh, you're, you're harnessed in, you're roped in, and, and there's a trapeze out there. And your job is to jump from the, the thing some sadistic guy built to a trapeze out there that's like 200 miles away. <laughs> and I'm looking at that and say, does this look like a body that can jump and grab a trapeze and hang on for a while? I mean, so, so I'm on the edge of this thing, and I'm looking out there and think, there's no way. I am not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And down there, they say, you got to jump. You got There's no other way down. So you jump. I had so much adrenaline, I could have caught that sucker with my armpits. I mean, I was like <laughs> out there jumping. I was like Michael Jordan in action. So now I'm hanging on a trapeze, and you got to go down. And I look down, and what they do is they belay you down. So there's a young man on the ground. He's a different young man. He's 19 years old. This is a summer job. He's making eight bucks an hour. He's been trained for six hours, not two weeks. He weighs one third of what I weigh. I'm thinking when I go down, he's going to come up and it's going to be bad. I mean, it's going to be really bad. 
So he starts, you know, he says, you got to let go, you got to let go, you got to let go. So eventually, you, I mean, you can't hang on forever, you let go, and he belays you down, and fortunately, we made it without breaking anything. So fast forward, about 10 years later, we're in South Africa, Cape Town, South Africa, beautiful Table Mountain, and they have what they call abseiling there, which is rappelling, and one of the young men in our body who was with us wanted to go abseiling, rappelling, and and uh, nobody wanted to go with him. And he said, Pastor Gary, I heard you went rappelling once. And sheepishly said, yeah. He said, would you go rappelling with me? I thought, sure, I will rappel. You got to Table Mountain and you go to the top. And I've done this before. And I don't know if it's because of my size or if it's the way they do it, but they double harness me. Okay? <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is pretty cool. I mean, if one rope breaks, I got a second one. It was a 400-foot drop. The first 250 feet, you're bouncing off a cliff. The next 150 feet was a free fall. I mean, it was so beautiful. Stop to take a picture. I mean, going down. When I was in Colorado, I thought I was going to die. Now I'm stopping to take pictures. Why? Because you've been there before. Because you've been there before. And because God has been faithful in the past. And you've been there before, and you've seen what he's done. And you read about in the scriptures, and you experience it in your life. Because he's been faithful in the past, you can have faith for today, and you can have hope for tomorrow. And it's because you've been there. Father, we thank you. We thank you for being a faithful God who orchestrates history to accomplish your purposes. And Father, there are times we look at the world around us, we want to throw up our hands as though you're not in control. We look at our lives, we want to throw up our hands as though you're not in control. But Father, we're grateful. We've been there. We have seen you work. We've seen your faithfulness. We read about it. We've experienced it ourselves. And because of that, we have faith in you today and we have hope for tomorrow. My friend, if you're here today and you aren't sure if Christ is your Savior, he went to that cross for you. And the great hope for tomorrow comes through your salvation in him. And maybe you know the Savior. You're a prodigal running from him. The great hope for today is he's faithful. He loves you. His arms are wide open. Or maybe you walk with him and you love him and you honor him. Maybe your days are filled full of rejoicing in his goodness. Seeking after him. Because of the faithfulness in the past, you can do that today. And you've got hope for tomorrow. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.